and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel McCarthy, and we thank you for joining us on this Thursday, March 7th, International Book Day, which is reason why we have a guest in studio who has read probably more than one book. It's Alan Smith. <laughs> Down the line, he's been busy on Champions League duty this week and is joining us from the Zoological Gardens in Paris. It's Henry Winter. Later on, we'll be joined by Molly Hudson, who I believe has also read numerous books, to discuss England's She Believes Cup victory. So that's to come. But we start with an historic night in Paris. On the 34 previous occasions that a team had lost the home leg of a Champions League knockout by two or more goals, the team had never gone through in the second leg. Manchester United, though, became the first, winning 3-1 at Paris Saint-Germain to progress to the quarterfinals on away goals. Uh, Henry, you were there. Did you give them any chance before kickoff? Not really. I was talking to some friends of mine um, who, who work for PSG and I said, oh, I'll probably be 3-1 to you. I can see United scoring, but I can also you know, see with, with Mbappe scoring. So, uh, yeah, it was 3-1, but it was uh, it was the other way around. It's one of the great United uh, nights. It's br- absolutely brilliant to see them playing like that. No fear, handbreak off, commitment, playing for the shirt, playing for the fans. You can see it with the explosion of emotion at the end, just running and throwing themselves into the fans. It's what football should be about. Whether Manchester United is your team or not, you want to see that emotion in the game. You bring up the emotion, and obviously, and I'm sure we'll get to it, uh, there, there was a big VAR call at the very end. And one of the, the arguments is that VAR is going to suck the emotion out of the game and stuff. It certainly didn't in this case, did it? No, no, no. I mean, it was. I mean, it's interesting listening to some of the pundits last night. All the former players said it's not a penalty, and all the referees and the VAR and Scamini, which is one of the best referees in the world, they all went penalty. So I, the, the whole VAR debate, which we will be doing every second at the start of the Premier League season next year, you know, they're going to have to fine tune it, work out exactly which. Episode. I know they're supposed to be used for sort of four things, but at some point they're going to have to narrow it down a bit more. But look, the referees say it was right, and it's the right call, and I mean, it's a huge call as well. So, uh, But look, you saw what PSG were trying to do to Marcus Rashford. They were trying to put him off. You saw how calm he was, you know, and it's great seeing English penalty takers scoring, particularly against Buffon. So, you know, I got huge admiration for, for Rashford at 21, who embodies what Manchester United are about, attacking, homegrown, local, giving everything, just a, you know, good guy off the pitch, does all the sort of charity work and, you know, quietly. And he's, But he just took that penalty so well. And, you know, I think just looking around the other English journalists in the press box, I don't think anyone ever thought he would actually miss because they're just a sort of, he was just so calm. Um, I know Eric Dyer missed one recently, but we're seeing Raheem Sterling and Harry Kane absolutely nail their recent penalties. So, uh, you know, that is, that's fantastic to see. And, but look, the, the credit has to go to so many people. Obviously, Solskjaer, who's changed the mood, changed the tactics, put a smile and a swagger back into Manchester United. But also some of the unsung heroes. I thought Chris Smalling was outstanding last night. I mean, Mbappé was getting absolutely coated by L'Equipe, the French sports paper, in the, uh, this morning, for a bit of criticism. Um, but that was largely down to Smalling playing really well. Let's just talk about the VAR penalty then, because it is a massive talking point. And you're right, Henry, the referees that have been asked about it, including our very own Peter Walton, have all said it's a penalty. But a lot of ex-professionals, a lot of current professionals are saying it wasn't a handball. 
Where does everyone stand on this? Alan, was it a penalty for you? Um, well, according to the referees, they've been sort of briefed that if the hand's in an unnatural position, it is a penalty. And obviously we've, we're going to kind of see next season the, the handball laws in terms of scoring goals with accidental handballs will, will change as well. So I think it's a wider issue in terms of, of handball. Um, in terms of Kimbembe's action, I thought the manner in which he sort of turned his back on goal, you know, that's one of the sort of basics of defending that you're told at like under eight face the ball um, and I think you know for that he's sort of inadvertently been punished because his arm is out in that position I personally felt that his arm was in an unnatural position slightly um, and therefore with Peter Walton yeah and, uh, and well, disagree with most, all those most of the referees played the game yeah but but if if the referees have been briefed this season that the approach the handball yeah. is changing then you know what the pundits were saying last night while you know, I think Rio Ferdinand and Michael Owen were both said on BT afterwards that no way, not in a million years was it a penalty, but that was before this slight different interpretation that the referees have been told about. It does boil down to that. And with the changes that IFAB approved, which aren't really changes, they're basically codifying what referees had already been told, which is saying like, okay, the law says it has to be deliberate. You're not a mind reader, so... These are the things that we want you to consider when determining whether whether it's deliberate. And it's obviously it's it's distance of the defender when the shot goes off, and it's and it's obviously the the natural position, positions above your head, positions arms away from your body, and and, and whatever. In that sense, it's been like this for a while. That said, there are already differences, and and and, and there have been. If you watch La Liga, they give a lot more of uh, of decisions like this in England. They give less, which is why, you know, everybody freaked out at the Otomendi one. I thought it was pretty obvious. What bugs me in this debate a little bit is that people talk about extremes. Like, oh, what are you supposed to do? Jump with your hands behind your back? And, oh, but then you're going to give hundreds of penalties. And no, that's not the case. They don't give hundreds of penalties in La Liga, for example, where they go and they have this to the letter. It really doesn't happen that often that, that defenders have their arms out to the side and it hits them and... You know, even in the Premier League, you know, you don't see it happen that often. It doesn't get punished. So I think people need to get used to it. I think what would be helpful, and I know that clubs have been briefed by UEFA and by the Premier League as well. They send people around at the start of the season saying this will be called. And having some dude on television who retired 10 years ago coming out saying like, oh, this wasn't in my opinion, you know, I mean, you know, dude. The game moves on. These are, these are the rules as they are today. All you ask is that they be enforced consistently. Let's focus on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And Henry, you mentioned him and about the credit that needs to go to him for bringing about a positive change at Manchester United. He's won all nine of his away games now, including victories at Tottenham, Arsenal, Chelsea and, of course, now PSG. So how much uproar do you think, Henry, there'll be amongst United fans if he wasn't to be given the job in the summer? I don't think there'll be any uproar because I can't see there any case of him not getting the job. I just think it's. Uh, I think the club are handling it very sensibly. They don't need to rush into it. Things are going very nicely. I'm sure they're having discussions behind the scenes with uh, Ole Gunnar on uh, on potential purchases where they need to strengthen. I think equally pressing, arguably, for them is bringing in a, a technical director, a director of football, and shifting Ed Woodward, executive vice chairman, who is brilliant at the multi-billion-pound noodles deal. Just pushing him back onto the financial side, where he's absolutely brilliant, can generate all the money, which then Solskjaer and a technical director can, can go and um, spend. So we're actually having the expertise in the right places. 
because you know, Ed Woodward is very charming. He's a Manchester United fan. He's a brilliant money man, but he's not a great recruiter. He seems to have gone for the sort of the Galacticos in the past, which hasn't really worked. And I think he's landed on his feet. You know, credit for him for appointing Solskjaer as an interim. He can make that uh, appointment permanent in the in the summer with some, you know, great thanks to uh, Mulder, and then just move on. But he does need a, a, a director of football because that job, particularly at Manchester United, with the pressures in the size of the club, you're only going to see the reaction on social media last night to Manchester United's win. I mean, it is just they are a global phenomenon. I mean, it's the New York Knicks times three. You know, they they are colossal. So. You know, I think that you know, the social decision is fairly straightforward. I'm sure it'll have the blessing of Robbie Charlton and Sir Alex Ferguson. I think everyone can see that the club's identity is, is returning. The glory nights are returning. That connection with the fans and, and the shirt is returning. And I think that process is, is clear. But there are issues behind the scenes, like with um, you know, the technical director. Those have got to be addressed. They've still got to strengthen. I thought what was also great last night, and again, great credit to Solskjaer, is who's prepared to throw on kids. You know, I mean, put on Mason Greenwood, who's back at school tomorrow. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant what, they've, what, what he's done. This is what Manchester United are about. Everyone was raving about Ajax the night before. But if you actually look at Manchester United, uh, since 1945, half of their first team players have been homegrown. I mean, if that's a stat according to the, to the club, I haven't actually gone back through the record books and counted everyone up. That is a phenomenal achievement, you know, that, that they breed their own. Fans love that. I think it's brilliant. What does it say about the United team, Alan, that they were missing so many key players? Henry's already alluded to the fact that youngsters had to be brought in as well. There was no Pogba, no Martial, no Matic, Lingard, Herrera. That's to name just a few. And then they go and win at PSG. What does it say about the team spirit? Um, it says plenty for the team spirit. I think it says more about, I'm going to use a word that's kind of crept into fashion over the past couple of weeks, relating to a different club, that PSG absolutely bottled it. Um, I thought they played really well during the first half at one all, But if you consider the second half, um, especially in injury time, when I think there were another five, maybe six minutes afterwards, everything was just so passive. There was no sort of hurry. There was no rush. Yes, they had opportunities, hit the post, had an offside goal ruled out. Um, De Gea made a number of decent saves. But in general, when you compare PSG's performance in the first leg, when Mbappe's just, just used his raw pace to kind of completely tear United's defence apart. And I know Henry's already given credit to the Smalling, and I thought he performed really well last night. But you just didn't see that same sort of zest in their performance going forward, despite all the possessions. So I think, you know, obviously United's performance... You know, it was an incredible result. And when you consider the, the 10 first team players that were, that were missing, you know, they're due tons of credit. But I, I just really struggled to overlook PSG's just failures, really, because we've we've seen it before in the Champions League. I know they were knocked out by Real Madrid last season, had played quite well, still knocked out. Um, the infamous Barcelona capitulation two years ago. And, you know, they just seem to struggle in the second legs of these knockout ties. And obviously you kind of look into it further and you realise that because domestically they're not being challenged, does this hold them back? Because once they get into Europe, they're challenged and they just seem seem to fall apart when it really, really matters. So, yeah, I would place sort of more emphasis on PSG falling apart rather than United, despite obviously yeah. incredible performance. Uh, I think you're doing it on the head. Eh? You can look at this and say, look, PSG went out on the away goals rule and with a very controversial injury time penalty and you know really if you look at 
the run of play over the two legs. Unless you're insane, you're going to say that PSG were, were the better team, not just by a little bit, but by a lot, except football doesn't work that way. And in the return leg, you know, as you said before, you're playing a United team with 10 players out, including Paul Pogba, who I think is one of the two most important players. So I think there's a way to say PSG really screwed the pooch on this one. And at the same time, praising United for the guys who went out there. I mean, you know, McTominay, Pereira, they know that they wouldn't be starters if Matic Herrera and Pogba were all available. And yet they went out there, they made a count, they kept going until the very end. And of course they had luck on their side. But, you know, luck is a factor in football. And all you can do is keep hanging in there. And then if you get lucky, you get lucky. And if you don't, you don't. But PSG, yeah, I agree with you. And those final minutes when it looked like nobody was going to take charge, it's like, who's going to put in the cross? Oh, no, you you have it. No, you have it. You know, I part of me thought, well, if Neymar had been there, he would have just gotten the ball and just run with it until he lost it or, or pretended he got fouled or got fouled. You know, but you need to take that responsibility. And that wasn't there. And I think there's quite a lot of karma involved as well, even if you kind of think of Buffon and what happened with, with Michael Second Oliver. straight years. Yeah. Second um, straight year giving up uh, a late penalty. Yeah, Neymar, considering his reputation as well, there was quite. I'm sure a lot of neutrals would have taken amusement from his sort of reaction, almost in tears at full time. And I noticed his um, his Instagram post saying that you know it's a joke of a decision. They've they've put four people who don't know anything about football in referring to the officials and then sort of signing off with an expletive, which I think maybe considering sort of past history could end up with a suspension. Um, for which would be which would be ridiculous because I thought it was amusing, but you know there is precedent for you know these kind of comments leading to a punishment of sorts. Well, next up for uh, Manchester United, it is Arsenal away in the Premier League on Sunday. So, uh, Henry, can Solskjaer make it ten away wins out of ten? Yes, I think everyone was expecting them to, to maybe sort of have a dip after this emotional high. But I don't think that's Solskjaer's way. I don't think it's character's way. I don't think. Um, Nick Phelan, anyone who knows Phelan, and he's had a very important role to play tactically with substitutions as well, helping uh, Solskjaer. Phelan's been really important. I think they will, you know, they will enjoy the moment, but I think it will be the Ferguson thing that the uh, the celebrations stay in the dressing room, and then the moment you leave the dressing room, you go back to work, and that they will absolutely be focused on that. I think, you know, we'll obviously have one or two players returning. I mean, it's interesting that uh, Gab mentions that Pogba's, you know, one of Manchester United's two most important players. I said, I would probably say that they're three. I'll put Rashford and De Gea in with, with Pogba in terms of importance. Um, and I think when you've got players of that quality, Arsenal don't have anyone in that league. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Now, every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our very own Bill Edgar provides 11 trivia teasers for you, and here is one for you on this podcast. Going back to 1981, 30 players have been either top scorer or joint top scorer in the English top flight. Mo Salah and Robin Van Persie are two of those. But what do they have in common which doesn't apply to any of the other 28 players? Hmm... Wow. What do you think, Alan? No idea. <laughs> He's a big help, isn't he? Is that even, is that even brainstorming? Natalie, just me and you here then. Alan's useless. 
be giving up on Alan already. My God. Okay, they're both foreign, right? Yeah. Have other Is foreign players age? been top scorers? Didier Drogba has. Both are, both are former wingers? Mm, possibly. Were there other former wingers who've been top goal scorers? Ronaldo. Ronaldo has, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, oh, fair enough. See, you okay. see, you get so Alan that's involved. How about... Was, Van Persie wasn't primarily top goal scorer at United, was he? It was before that at Arsenal, I mm, assume, right? That's what I was thinking. Okay. They would have said they've both played for, for two top six clubs. Mm-hmm. But actually, has anybody else played for two top six clubs? Oh, interesting. Who would have been top scorer? We don't have long to find out. Oh, wait, Frank oh. Stapleton. He's Irish. You should know this. Come on. Nineteen eighty-one. Yeah. When did Frank Stapleton retire? Did he retire? He's not that old. He late, retired late before nineties. 90... But yeah, he would have been. He would have played for two of the big six. Don't know that top score. It's a stumbling block. We're not sure. You only have to go to the end of the podcast. Stick around to the end to find out the answer. So one of the favourites in PSG exit the Champions League and on Tuesday the holders Real Madrid were eliminated spectacularly by Ajax who ran out 4-1 winners at the Bernabeu. Uh, It marks the end of Real's streak of three successive Champions League titles and Gab you wrote for the Times about Real's downfall being a result of arrogance and extravagance. Yeah I mean unlike many people and this might surprise people who listen to me regularly I don't have a problem with being arrogant. You know, I go with a Kid Rock view that, you know, it ain't bragging if you say it, then you back it up. It's the same when we go, when we, we praise people in football, especially athletes, where the mentality matters so much. Uh, we praise them for, 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 for their confidence, right? It's, it's a very fine line. I mean, it's, it's, it's two sides of, of, of the very same coin. However, you got to back it up. You have to get the decisions correct. And there's so many wonderful metaphors about what went wrong here. The club deciding in September that they're going to spend more than half a billion pounds on a roof for the Bernabeu in a notoriously rainy place like like Madrid, right? They don't even have a roof at, you know, freaking Old Trafford where it's cloudy all the time. Um, and and it's, it's a, half a billion, to be fair. It's not just a retractable roof. They also get this shiny metal cladding. What purpose this serves other than beautifying things when that money could have been used or maybe should have been used on strengthening the team. That's one obvious metaphor. The other metaphor is Sergio Ramos, right? Sergio Ramos getting himself intentionally booked against Ajax in the first leg when they're 2-1 up in the 90th minute thinking like, all right, well, this is done and dusted. Let me get myself booked so I can serve the suspension in the second leg. Then I'll be ready for the quarterfinal in case we get somebody good that we actually need to worry about. And of course, UEFA saw through this. He was given an additional ban. But on top of all that, he's up in his own private box at the Bernabeu with an Amazon film crew who are filming a documentary about his life. I mean, you couldn't be making this stuff up. There's a disconnect with reality. Now, in more practical terms, I think what's very obvious is this was a team that was, they were growing old together. Certain issues hadn't been addressed. That's the reason Zinedine Zidane left. This is a team that they won the Champions League fourth in five years, great, but they were 17 points behind in La Liga last season. That should have been a big warning light. 3-0 up from the first leg against Juventus, then they're 3-0 down in the 90th minute at home in the return leg. They only beat Bayern because 
you know, Sven Ulreich, who was standing in for Manuel Neuer, threw one into the back of his own net. All these factors should have been major warning lights. I think Zinedine Zidane saw them. I think that's a big reason why he left. Cristiano obviously left for other reasons. But the notion that the inmates were running the asylum was minutes after winning this historic Champions League, Cristiano Ronaldo and Gareth Bale going out there and making it all about themselves, being like, well, I, I may have to leave if I don't get more playing time. I'm like, no. Well, how about you behave like a professional? I mean, with Cristiano, we're used to it. Gareth Bale, less so. It was just a climate that was all wrong. And I think and when they did kind of realize it and said, let's just bring in a system guy like Julian Lopetegui, what, what did they do? They go about it the wrong way in signing him. They have all this negativity. And then after 14 games, they sack him. You mentioned there Gareth Bale. Uh, he's not having the best of it this season, especially when you think about how the Real fans are uh, treating him, if you like. They are jeering him. Uh, they've been uh, booing and uh, the whistles have been ringing out as well when he's been subbed of late. Uh, Gareth Bale's agent has says the way he's been treated has been a disgrace. So, Henry, what do you make of the way that Bale's been treated? I just don't think fans should do that. I just think it's so counterproductive. I think it's so naive and forgetting what he did for them, particularly well, three Champions League finals, but particularly in two. You know, he's got one of the greatest goals of all time. Um, so, yeah, I think probably his agent should have been a little bit, maybe a bit more diplomatic. Um, because with, with, with the respect, I mean, Gaspar was a magnificent player, but there, there are injuries. Um, there are obviously the, you know, the wage issues. But I just thought it was disrespectful of the Real Madrid fans. Maybe there's a general anger about what's happening. The fact that he's not CR7. Um, there's huge issues there. And uh, you know, that's a club that shouldn't just worry about one player, but should worry about manager, but, president. Sorry, Henry, can, and can, just, just, just to put this in context, though, because I know obviously Gareth Bale being British, you know, it makes more of a splash here. But I don't think he's been good. I don't think he's been helped. I don't think his, his agent helps at all. But that said, he's not the only one who's been booed. This is, this is what makes Real Madrid, I think, different from every other club in the world, whether it's Barcelona or Manchester United, is that every single person at that club, except maybe Sergio Ramos, but including legends like Raul and Casillas and Zidane and Cristiano, everybody gets booed when the fans aren't happy. Those are the most demanding fans in the world. Carlo Ancelotti told me that... You don't often get players. So yeah, you can go on as much about that as you like, Gav. But just in terms of uh, defending Gareth you don't often get fellow players coming out and criticising him. Now, even if the headlines were slightly ramped up, I thought they were a little bit disrespectful. And a lot of people in, in Britain who are laughing at Courtois. Florentino sold them on the idea that, and it's not just him, it's Benzema as well. These guys were Florentino's pets. And the idea was, well, you'll see, we don't need Cristiano. As soon as Cristiano leaves, these guys will flourish and pick up the slack. And the reality is that, that they have it. And maybe it was unreasonable expectation. And Ronaldo. And Ronaldo is one of the greatest players of all time. Bale will go down as one of British football's greatest exports, but you wouldn't put him in Ronaldo's league, let alone Messi. I'm not sure Florentino did, or says he did. Maybe it was just another marketing ploy from him, like the big shiny metal cladding saying, like, we don't need Ronaldo, we've got Bale and Benzema. Well, it's okay. Well, then maybe the club needs to have a look at uh, uh, its principles, its culture, and its identity. Just in terms of the two complaints from from the players, from the other, from Bale's teammates towards him, one is the his failure to learn Spanish properly. But I think the key one is this idea that because he's playing too much golf, that's led to his back injuries, therefore stopping him from playing. And I think, you know, if if that was true, 
that is quite a big complaint in, in terms of, you know, I'd feel if I was a teammate of a player who was playing a different sport and therefore stopping himself from competing at the best level, I would be really annoyed. I'm not necessarily sure you should go public with it, but I do think it is... I've heard that too. Yeah. The reality is we're not doctors. Even no, no, if we no. were doctors, we haven't examined no. Gareth Bale. The reality is a lot of time it's down to judgment. Right, So you can't definitively prove that this is what causes Bale's back injuries, to be fair to him. But there's no question that there's a disconnect. When, so, you know, when you have a team dinner and the guy who really is, I don't know, it's not just about money and Sergio Ramos is the captain, but you know, with great wages comes great responsibility. The guy who's supposed to be the centerpiece and the guy who said that he would be the centerpiece, when he said, like, you know, if I don't get my playing time, I, I'll go elsewhere, whatever, but obviously he wasn't willing to take a pay cut to do that. When he doesn't show up, it doesn't sit well with them. And I don't think it's hard to it's hard to understand why they would react. That said, the issues are so many, and Gareth Bale is just one of many, many issues at this club. Well, of course, it is uh, Santiago Solari who's in charge at the moment. Will he remain in charge <laughs> come the end of this season? And if not, who will take over? I went back and I checked this. The last time that they were this far out of the running in the league and out of of Europe and the Spanish Cup was in 1942 when they finished ninth. Wow. So basically, their off season has begun, and there's no point sacking Solari now. But what you do is you go to Solari and you say, "Okay, Solari, between now and the end of the season, it's all about." Obviously, we still want to finish top four, but it's all about figuring out who we have, who we keep. We're going to have a managerial search, see if we can get somebody we like better, whether it's. Pochettino, whether it's Mourinho, who's been advertising his wares daily, whether it's, it's Allegri, whether they take a run at Jurgen Klopp, Leonardo Jardim, whoever it is, and just understand that you're an employee of the club, this is what you're going to do, and we let you keep your job till the summer. And then you weigh up where you are, and you weigh up what you can do, and who you're going to keep, who you're going to sell. A lot of these guys are difficult to sell. We've spoken a lot about Real Madrid, but what about Ajax? Like Monaco the season before last and Jurgen Klopp's Borussia Dortmund, is this a team that can shock people, go to the very latter stages of the Champions League, Alan? Um, I think it's very much dependent on on the draw. You'd kind of look at paper and you'd kind of think if you're the manager of one of, say, the the big names who are at this point in the Champions League every season, they would rather have Ajax than than any other, assuming that is that City finish the job against Schalke next week, etc., but I kind of look at this Ajax team and the big issue is that, you know, while a lot of people had said immediately after the Real result that, you know, this is great to see sort of a slightly different name. Yeah, and a, a big club from sort of the past, but, you know, it, in recent history weren't at this stage of the competition. To see them there is, you know, it's so refreshing. And in some ways, I find it kind of a little bit sad because inevitably this team will be broken up. Um, you look at Frankie de Jong, who's you know agreed to move to Barcelona already. Um, Matthias de Ligt, who's I think 19, um, centre back, captain of the team, um, and you kind of think that you know a big club will come in, offer some silly money. Ajax will have no other option but to sell, and therefore the team will be broken up. So it's kind of a case of you know enjoy it while you can it's, it's not going to last and I think that is a, ultimately a kind of a, a sad reflection on the state of football and the sort of this, this era of super clubs It was a landmark week for England's women who brought home the She Believes Cup for the very first time we're joined now by women's football writer for the Times Molly Hudson and Molly how strong an indicator is this tournament ahead of the World Cup in France this summer? 
it's quite difficult to tell, really, because on paper, the sides, obviously, world champions, USA, and then Japan, who are known for their technicality. Obviously, the squads that they actually brought to the tournament uh, were quite inexperienced. I mean, for the Americans, they were in the off-season. So it's quite difficult to kind of place where, where England are, really, because, of course, they beat these sides, but these sides will be very different to the ones that actually appear at the World Cup. But definitely it's a positive that we've won the tournament. It's Phil Neville's first piece of silverware with the Lionesses. And I think it really gives uh, England that um, winning mentality that often we say England teams are lacking. I spoke to somebody who basically echoed exactly what you said and they said that, you know, this is a friendly tournament. And for Phil Neville to consider it the first trophy of his managerial career is a little bit like you know, considering the ICC, or dare I say, even the Community Shield as like a proper trophy. But then again, that's what Jose Mourinho does. So um, I suppose he's in good company. But on the other hand, there there is something to be said for going out there as a unit with a strong squad and beating those 11 other players wearing the Japan, Brazil, and US shirts. I mean, I think psychologically that, that can make a difference, right? Definitely. I think it's been really important, particularly... For Phil, he was very keen to make sure that togetherness in that squad, particularly with the circumstances that he came into the job. And I think he's made, from speaking to people that are in the squad, he's made sure that everybody feels valued and the people that have kind of been on the bench, he made sure that they got on in the Japan game. So by no means was it the strongest possible 11 that England got either. So the fact that they still managed to get some minutes for those squad players and they still went on to win the tournament. It's, it's definitely a positive. And yes, it is that old cliche of the Mickey Mouse trophy, but it is a trophy. And I think that, that can only be a good thing with the World Cup around the corner. So Molly, who do we expect to be the stars of the summer for England? Uh, Beth Mead certainly caught the eye with that sensational goal against Brazil, for example. I think Beth Mead certainly has, has been one of the ones that we talk about whether this trophy is actually important or not. But for actually players' individual development, particularly younger players in the squad, it's played a big part. And Beth Mead, it's, it's the best she's ever played in an international shirt. Um, for Manchester City midfielder Kira Walsh, she's still, I think, 21. And she's, you know, she's became a really crucial part of that midfield, particularly with the absence of the injured Jordan Nobbs. So I think in terms of that, it's been really important. Obviously, you have Frank Kirby. Um, which will be a huge part of whether her form, if she plays well, England England tend to play well. And I think this tournament has also found Phil Neville's favours four two three one formation that that Kirby plays in, and it seems to be getting the best out of her. More broadly, I I know somebody who used to play for for the England women's team, and quite humbly, she said that compared to her era, and from this one, the improvement and she played for Hope Powell for a long time, the, the improvement has just been radical, and that maybe other than Kelly Smith, if, if they were all the same age, there'd be nobody else from her team. And I'm thinking, like, she, she, I think she played in, the, was it the 2007 World Cup? Has it really been, I mean, is, this, is, is, is that a bit extreme? Is this England team really orders of magnitude better than even 10 years ago because of the resources, because of the coaching, because of the, the WSL and all those things that, that have happened? Obviously, it's hard to pick out individual players and who would and wouldn't make it. But I think the point is true. The game has developed massively. I mean, if you look at the women's league this season, 
it's the first time the top league has ever been fully professional. So that in itself is a completely different format to what the players of that era would have played in. But also, you take um, somebody like Siobhan Chamberlain, the Manchester United goalkeeper, was saying that they went through whole patches of their career without ever having a goalkeeper coach. You know, and if you imagine that to somebody like an Ellie Roebuck, who's now at Manchester City, and throughout her whole career, even though she's only been in the game a couple of years, she will have already had more goalkeeper training than those legends of the past England team have ever had. So I think it is, it's totally evolving and it, it will become a whole different game because, you know, the investment's growing, the coaching's growing, you're attracting best, bigger, bigger and better names for the sport. Back then, you, you never know if the, the England's master would have just never played the game because there wasn't those heroes that, that made her want to as a child. And I think now that that pathway's there, it's only going to, it's only going to benefit the quality of the game and hopefully that will then turn its way into the attendances and everything else. Hi there and welcome to The Sweeper, which is of course the Times' Fantasy Football Tips service. My name's Charlie Scott and I'm joined by Paddy Bear. Hello. Game week 30, one team that we like the look of going forward is Bournemouth. Five mm. winnable fixtures, I'd say. Yeah, um, <clears throat> along with Leicester, who we talked about last week, they're the two teams who have five nice games coming up including games in those two blank game weeks that are going to cause a bit of havoc and they obviously are both teams that have a handful of attacking players that you could find a way of getting interested in David Brooks David Brooks is an easy one still still very cheap still a very good player seems to be pretty nailed on for them whenever he's fit only £5 million absolutely bargain um, up front is a bit trickier Callum Wilson may be back soon we don't know he's been close to being returning for a long time uh, Josh King has doing, been doing an admirable job in his place but um you get the sense that if Wilson comes back and plays against, you know, Huddersfield, Newcastle, Burnley, all that lot, that, um, that he could be very popular indeed. Definitely. And just, you mentioned the blank game weeks. Advice yeah, for that. it's a, probably a good time just to remind people, we said a few weeks ago that you should start preparing for your team to either put out a full 11 if possible using your transfers or just ignore the blanks and use some of your chips on them, your free hit, your world card, etc. This is a very good time to just double check and make sure what you think you're going to do. This is the final full game week before the first blank in which only 10 teams are playing. Um, so if you're going to do a transfer this week, think about whether it should be with the blank in mind uh, or whether you're happy to ignore that and just play your free hit next week. Absolutely. And just looking at that first blank game week in 31, the fixtures aren't amazing. No, I think you'd struggle to put out a great team with free hit, wouldn't you? So if you've if you've got the like, if you've got a couple of Liverpool players, maybe a West Ham attacker, uh, a couple of Bournemouth, Burnley, Leicester players, Liverpool, Fulham is the only one that really stands out as a potentially great fantasy fixture. But Fulham looked a lot more organised when Scott Parker took took charge of the first game last time out. And you never know, they could they could just be the sort of team that frustrated a slightly misfiring Liverpool. Sadio Mane is an interesting option for Liverpool. Yeah, it's the old debate, isn't it? Mane or, or Salah, do you spend the extra money on Salah? Salah, I don't think, has looked worth the extra recently, but as we know, he can turn it on for a few weeks Absolutely. whenever he wants to. What would you be doing? I don't know. I've got Salah. I started the season with both, which worked fantastically the first couple of weeks, and then I dropped Mane for Salah, had Salah ever since. But yeah, he's struggled recently, and Mane's form is fantastic. Mm. If you do go for Mane, it frees up so much. It's like... 
three million. Yeah, I think if you different. we're going for one or the other at the moment, it would be sensible to go for Mane and use that extra money. But that could well change in a couple of weeks. Anyway, for more of our musings, don't forget to sign up to our weekly email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football or join our Facebook group, which you can get to by searching for The Sweeper. Yeah, just uh, join the Facebook group, ask us your questions, screenshots of your team, whatever you want, and we'll try and help you out. It is time now for our weekly predictions game where Gab and I pick five matches from the coming weekend and try to predict the score. You did well last time, Gab, but a reminder that it is 14-9 to me this season. So making it exciting, Natalie. Mm-hmm. But let's get the ball rolling. Yes, please Palace do. against Brighton. Still relegation threatened to Brighton, which I wish they weren't. They shouldn't be, but mm. there is a rivalry here. I think Brighton can go up there and... I think the pressure's off Palace a little bit. I think they get the, they get a draw Dang at Sellers Park, yes. So what's the score? 1-1. 1-1, okay. i big fan of Chris Hewton. Love him. I think most people like Chris Hewton, don't they? Nice guy. Um, yeah, what are you gonna say? Yeah, who do you like more, Chris Hewton or Roy Hodgson? Oh. They were both on a boat and he was singing. Oh, you could only no! Say one. You can't ask me that question. Um, oh... Oh, I'd like to think that Chris Hewton can swim, so he'll be fine. So I'll okay, save so Roy. Save Roy <laughs> That's my di- I'm sure he appreciates that. <laughs> That's my diplomatic approach. Um, I I do think, uh, I don't want to say it, but I think Crystal Palace will win this one 2-1. The next game we're focusing on is another team who are threatened with relegation. Cardiff, they're at home to West Ham. And uh, Saul Bamba out yes, for the season. that's a blow. When I was suggesting to somebody, like, oh, could Cardiff still stay up? Like, no, Saul Bamba's out for the season. I mean, I feel bad for him, but I know he's important, but there are, they do have other players too. But. <laughs> You'd like to think there's more than Saul Bamba. Uh, I, I, ooh, I'm going to go for an away win, and I'm going to plump for a 2-0 West Ham win. No, man, I believe in Warnock. Do you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I also believe, ultimately, that West Ham get to that point in the season where you start thinking of the beach because you ain't going anywhere and you did your job. And okay. so I'm going to say Cardiff to win 2-1. Ooh. All right, then. What completes our Premier League focus? Yes, well, we've got Arsenal and Manchester United. Um Henry seems to be very, very confident that United can make it 10 away wins in a row. Mm. I'm less so. I'm actually going to go for the upset. I'm going to go for Arsenal returning from their trip against Rennes. An angry Alexander Lacazette since he's suspended. Um, And Arsenal finally putting an end to Solskjaer's run, which has to end at some point. I'm going to say Arsenal 2-1. Interesting. Okay. Um, I think that uh, United will still go unbeaten, but I think this one might be a draw. You're I'm actually on the fence. I am sitting on the fence, but I'm going for a, a 2-2 draw. Entertaining. Right. Then we move into the championship. Ooh, Ooh the Midlands derby. Uh, the second city derby. Birmingham, this time hosting Aston Villa. Do you know the situation with these two teams? <laughs> I have no idea, Phil. <laughs> As it is in the table, Birmingham 8th. They are four points off the playoff positions. Aston Villa... 11th, six points off the all-important top six. So does that help you in any way? Or do you want me to go first? Considering I went first last Oh, right then. I I see what you did there, but yes. (laughs) I was just being nice. Um, I mean, Aston Villa beat Birmingham, I 
think it was 4-2, was it, in the reverse fixture? But I think this one might be a bit more cagey because both these sides still hope to be getting into the playoffs and therefore that's why I think it'd be cagey. I'm going for a 1-1 draw. A 1-1 draw? Well, I will... I will be just as imaginative as you, <laughs> as you, and I'm going to go for a nil-nil draw. Oh, lovely. Let's go north of the border here. Yeah. Celtic, orphaned by Brendan Rodgers' move down south. So what do they go? <laughs> they go for the, the the man who, I suppose they have the same nationality, but apart from that, I think of him as like the antithesis of Brendan Rodgers. Mm-hmm. Also short, but... A much better footballer, obviously. And generally, I think a much more intense, credible person, Neil Lennon. Uh-huh. And not, not credible in terms of managerial ability. I don't want to make that clear. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I, I digress. I like Neil Lennon. I've worked with him on television several times, and I've found him to be a really nice person. I know people who are invested in the old firm rivalry probably won't like him because he's so invested in one side of it, understandably. But then again... You know, hopefully they can respect him. So for that reason, I'm going to go and back Celtic. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say they're going to win 3-1. Well, they are, of course, playing Aberdeen, who you neglected to mention. It was all about Celtic. First of all, okay. <laughs> Aberdeen are home to Willie Miller. Okay? <laughs> and if Miller and Mickley should started at the World Cup, then Scotland would have definitely won the World Cup. But instead, they went with it doofus Alan Hansen, who ruined it for everybody. Or so say my Aberdeen supporting friends. Right. Including Sir Alex Ferguson. Okay. As it is then, it is Celtic against Aberdeen. This is, what, over the last four years has been the top two in Scotland, but as it stands right now, it's top versus third. I'm still going for a Celtic win, but I'm going for a 2-1 win. All right. There we go. Let's see what happens. All right. What happens is that the lead goes down to four, 14-10. Just time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's trivia teaser then. Going back to 1981, 30 players have been either top scorer or joint top scorer in the English top flight. Mo Salah and Robin Van Persie are two of those. But what do they have in common, which doesn't apply to any of the other 28 players? The answer is that they are the only left-footed players to be top scorer since 1981. We need to be paying more attention left or right footed that is it for now many thanks to our guests today Henry Winter Alan Smith and Molly Hudson who's your favourite of the three today Alan of course not, not mine victory. not mine given his ignorance of Irish football history <laughs> now remember you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award winning journalism online and also on your smartphone or tablet just one pound a week for an eight week trial search the Times subscription for more information you know what's funny Natalie mm-hmm. I just realised right we read this this very paragraph every week and Charlie makes us read it yeah you know what I've been doing every time I read it I've been changing it ever so slightly and I've noticed that it comes out exactly the same on the podcast and I think it's because Charlie simply edits in the same thing he just makes me read it because he's a weirdo sadist <laughs> but in reality it's always it's always the same paragraph it's it's the one I taped back in October well let's anyway. see if this little moment that you just had. I suspect it won't. (laughs) Exactly. We will be back on Monday after the latest instalment of the title race. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hold up. 
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.